Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. It's been a while, but we are back. The reason it's been a while is that I've been presenting the Virgin podcast, um, which you should all listen to. It's absolutely excellent. But this week we're back and we're talking gold and we're talking gold with the man, Jim Ricketts. So I'm standing in the St Pancras Hotel in North London. This is a magnificent building. It was built, I think, during the great railway boom of the 1830s. And I'm standing in a kind of alcove, in in a quiet alcove, in in a distant little corner of the hotel... And the man standing opposite me is Jim Rickards. And Jim is a, is a fantastic author. His two books are The Death of Money and Currency Wars. And we're here to talk about his new book, which is The New Case for Gold. Now, Jim, welcome to the show. Before we get into The New Case for Gold, let, why don't we start with a kind of summary of, of currency wars? And we can kind of give this argument a frame. Sure. Thank you, Dominic. Great to uh, be with you. Um, right, my first book, uh, Currency Wars, came out in 2011. Uh, very close to the start of what I call uh, Currency War Three. The book's a mixture of uh, economics, history, and also uh, some prognostication. But uh, on the history side, I identify two previous currency wars. One lasted from 1921 to 1936. Uh, that was obviously the period uh, starting with the Weimar hyperinflation through the uh, Great Depression. Uh, what I call Currency War Two lasted from 1967 to 1987, began with the sterling crisis of uh, the mid-1960s uh, through the abandonment of a gold standard by Richard Nixon and finally ending with the Louvre Accord, uh, engineered by James Baker in 1987. Um, and now we're in Currency War Three, which began in 2010. I make the point that in uh, Currency War One, you had sequential devaluations. This period gave rise to the so-called beggar-thy-neighbor devaluations, starting with uh, so Germany destroyed its currency in 1921-22, uh, France and Belgium followed suit. They went back to a gold standard at a greatly devalued rate in 1925. Uh, then uh, the UK went off sterling in 1931 to value the pound. Uh, this left the United States as the last man standing, but finally President Roosevelt in 1933 devalued the US dollar against gold. Uh, interesting point, uh, from 1929 to 1933, that was the longest sustained period of deflation in U.S. history, and yet the price of gold went up 75% from about $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce. So I use that to make the point that gold not only does well in inflation, which is intuitive and obvious to most people, but also uh, in periods of deflation. So we're in this weird economic environment where there is low growth, or not. Then governments aren't getting the type of growth that they would like, There is no official inflation, although we're seeing 
quite horrible inflation in certain asset prices, London property being one example. We're seeing a widening wealth gap in pretty much every country and increasing anger about that wealth gap, which is manifesting itself in the kind of diminishing of power of the kind of liberal mentality that's ruled us for the last 20, 30 years. So we're seeing the, the rise of extremist politicians all across Europe. And, uh, of course, we've got Donald Trump in the USA who's, who's busy upsetting everyone. How is this all going to pan out? Well, uh, you make a good point. And, of course, uh, going back to what I call Currency War One, in the 1930s, we saw the same thing. Uh, the rise of Mussolini and fascism in Italy, the rise of Adolf Hitler and National Socialism in uh, Germany. Um, and, uh, of course, we know where that led. It, of course, ultimately led to World War II and, and the rise of militant Bushido uh, under the military rule in Japan. So we, we did see these uh, far-right extremists uh, and fascists, although I would make the point that uh, fascism is not a doctrine limited to the right. There's, there's left-wing uh, fascism as well, but be that as it may, let's call it nationalism, authoritarianism, and worse, uh, did arise in the 1930s uh, in the wake of a currency war and a global depression. So we're in another currency war. Uh, and it all goes back to the original cause, which, as I said, was insufficient growth. Look, when, when economies are growing and people are getting jobs and incomes are going up, of course there's income inequality and some people make more than others and some people become wealthier than others, but there's sort of enough to go around. Uh, the problem in a, um, in a recessionary or depressionary or deflationary period, which we're struggling with now, uh, there's not enough to go around. Uh, the rich get richer, but uh, the middle class uh, disappears and the poor uh, are, are worse off rather than better off. And that uh, is fodder for people with more nationalistic and extreme solutions. So it's not really surprising we have seen it before. It's going to get worse? Well, let's see how it plays out. I mean, remember, Adolf Hitler was democratically elected. Now, no sooner was he elected than he uh, conducted, conducted the, uh, this, the Reichstag fire and used that as a, as a pretext to abandon uh, any semblance of constitutional democratic rule. And he also had his thugs, uh, the brown shirts, uh, so maybe people were voting, but they were voting in a fairly intimidating environment. But the fact is, he was... Uh, uh, elected Chancellor of Germany uh, through a democratic process. Uh, and so um, uh, hopefully nothing like that will happen again. And I'm certainly not, uh, just to be clear, I'm not saying that uh, uh, Marine Le Pen or uh, uh, Nigel Farage or Donald Trump or any of the other politicians or anything like uh, Mussolini and Hitler, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that uh, we are seeing economic resentment play out in political space. Yeah, with we've also got extreme left-wing politicians as well. Correct. Uh, certainly, the, the Democrats uh, in the United States are as fearful of Bernie Sanders as the Republicans might be of Trump. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then Jeremy Corbyn uh, here in the UK, uh, Labour Party is, uh, you know, somewhat out of the mainstream relative to recent Labour Party leaders. So uh, you, you do see it on the left. You're absolutely right. I just don't think people are that stupid. I can't see us making the same mistakes that were made in the 1930s. I disagree, Dominic. I think we're making the same mistakes on a larger scale, and I think that will have more uh, portentous consequences. It, it does it, uh, you know, the old uh, saying attributed to Mark Twain, although apparently Mark Twain never said it, but he said, history, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. In other words, there are similarities, if not uh, completely identical paths. So I'm not predicting... Um, uh, I actually do think there might be a, uh, a rise of neo-fascism, but I don't think it will come from 
right-wing or even left-wing politicians. I think it will come from governments in response to a financial collapse. Uh, part of the reason I wrote the new book, The New Case for Gold, uh, has to do with the fact that a, a financial collapse far worse than 2008 is coming. Uh, it's, it's readily foreseeable. There's good science behind that. This is not something I consider speculative on my part. I could actually show you the equations and the science behind it. But when that comes, uh, it will be very different than 2008. In 2008, the response was to paper over the problem. Governments, uh, well, central banks really just printed the money, guaranteed bank deposits, guaranteed money market funds, did trillions of dollars of swap lines between the... Sure, and private debt was nationalized. Private debt was nationalized, exactly right. So, actually, let's go all the way back to 1998. Uh, People are less familiar with that episode. This started in uh, Asia in 97, played out around the world, and came to a head in August, September 1998 with the Russian default and the near collapse of uh, a hedge fund long-term capital management in Greenwich, Connecticut. Now, I happen to be the general counsel of long-term capital management, and I negotiated that bailout. I had a front row seat. I was on the phone, open line to the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury, and spoke with the heads of all the 14 banks. So I know just how dangerous that was. We were hours away from the uh, closure of every stock exchange and bond market in the world. That's how close we came to complete catastrophe. It didn't happen. Uh, $4 billion changed hands, and that was avoided, but uh, that's how close we were. So And then in 2008, we were uh, hours, uh, perhaps days, but no more than that, away from the sequential collapse of every bank in the world, every major bank in the world. So, But look at what happened. In 1998, Wall Street bailed out a hedge fund to save the world. In 2008, central banks bailed out Wall Street to save the world. Uh, In the next crisis, it will be the central banks themselves who are in trouble. Each bailout gets bigger than the one before. Uh, so who will bail out the central banks? The answer is uh, there's only one clean balance sheet left in the world, which is the IMF. Uh, and you'll see the IMF issue world money, uh, so what they call the special drawing rider, the SDR. Uh, so the, in the next liquidity crisis, which is coming sooner than later, the, uh, the reliquification of the world will come not from printing dollars or sterling or euros, but from printing SDRs and handing them out to the members. Um, this will be highly inflationary. They will finally get the inflation they've been looking for all this time. But it will also uh, could tie into social unrest and uh, uh, protest, um, perhaps uh, what I call money riots, which I foresee. And then uh, that could lead to a neo-fascist response from governments in power. I don't think it's as inevitable as you do. So why don't you tell me why it is? Because um, the, the models that central banks and policymakers use, they, they're called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. The key word is equilibrium. It's sort of like a, a device that uh, gets a little bit off center and you apply some policy and move it back to uh, a balanced position. And, uh, uh, or very, uh, another metaphor uh, example would be the thermostat in your home. You know, if your house is too cool, you dial it up. If your house is too warm, you dial it down. It's linear, it's reversible, it's all under control. That's how central bankers think of monetary policy in terms of uh, balancing out the economy. In fact, the economy bears no resemblance to that. Uh, it's much more of a uh, dynamic system, uh, a complex dynamic system, more like, more like a nuclear reactor. Uh, you can dial a nuclear reactor up or down, but you better know what you're doing because if you get it wrong, you'll cause a catastrophic meltdown. And it's an irreversible process. There's no such thing as a melt-up. So my greatest concern is that central bankers have their hand on the dial. They think they're playing with a thermostat, but they're actually playing with a nuclear reactor. There are many examples of complex systems in physics. They're well understood. Uh, 
uh, forest fires, uh, earthquakes, uh, solar flare cycles, uh, weather, hurricanes, um, as I said, many, uh, many, many examples, uh, an avalanche where snow builds up and builds up and builds up and then suddenly the entire snowpack becomes unstable and a single snowflake causes an avalanche. And, you know, do you run around blaming the snowflake that you never saw or do you look at the instability of the system as a whole? And I would certainly say that let's not blame the, the snowflake, it has to do with the instability of the system. So this is how complex so is, systems is, is, operate. Is, so is this crisis coming because a central bank is going to make him, isn't wielding his power properly? Is it going to happen because central banks have too much power? What? Well the, the, well, the question is ir- irrelevant in, in, this, in this sense, Dominic. Uh, you're sort of asking about the snowflake. You're saying, well, which, what will the catalyst be? It's a question I get frequently. People say, uh, almost as if to say, hey, Jim, I hear what you're saying about gold. Uh, you know, call me up at 3 o'clock the day before the crisis, and I'll sell my stocks and buy gold, and I'll be good. And I say, well, I won't know the day before. I can tell you it's coming. I can give you some sense of the magnitude of it, but I won't know the exact day it comes, and neither will anyone else. Um, but the point is, um, you can see it coming by the scale of the system. So let's go back to 2008. What did we hear about? We heard too big to fail, too big to fail, too big to fail. Well, today, uh, the five largest banks in the United States uh, are bigger than they were in 2008. They have a larger percentage of the total banking assets. Their derivatives books are much larger. So therefore, everything that was too big to fail then is bigger and more dangerous today. Uh, central bank balance sheets are much larger. The whole system is larger and therefore more uh, prone to failure and the relationship between uh, catastrophic events and frequency in a complex dynamic system. Again, I want to be clear, this is science. This is not, uh, this is not the economics they teach you at Harvard and Yale, most of which isn't worth very much. Uh, but if you, if you look at the science of complexity, uh, what you learn is when you increase the scale of a system, the risk goes up, uh, risk being measured by the, the most dangerous thing or the worst thing that could happen. Uh, not in a linear way, but in an exponential way. So we have increased the scale of the system, which means that we are much, much riskier and much more vulnerable, dangerous position than we were in 2008. So the, the collapse is just a matter of time. It will be worse in 2008. That's easily foreseeable. Uh, but what happened in 2008, central banks, you know, the U.S. Federal Reserve is a good example. They took their balance sheet from about $800 billion in 2008 to over $4 trillion by the end of 2015. Um, so, what, But the problem is they haven't normalized it. They're still at $4 trillion. What are they going to do the next time? Go to $8 trillion, $12 trillion? Why can't they do that? Well, legally they can. In fact, it's been uh, suggested. You heard, I heard more and more frequently. Uh, why don't governments run uh, deficits of unlimited size, print uh, debt to cover those deficits, and have their central banks print the money, buy the debt, and simply tuck it away and never repay it? What's wrong with that? And the point is... You, legally, you can do this. Mechanically, you can do this. But there comes a time when you push through an invisible confidence limit, when people lose confidence in the currencies. I've had this discussion with um, Paul Walker and others. You know, people say, uh, gee, you know, a dollar is not backed by anything, or a pound is, uh, sterling is not backed by anything, or Bitcoin is not backed by anything. I say, well, actually, they are all backed by one thing, which is confidence. Uh, if you and I have confidence... So the law. Well, the law in the sense that uh, they can require you to pay your taxes in that currency, and so you have to go out and earn some and have some in order to pay your taxes. But you don't have to earn any more than that. Uh, And you can take what's left over uh, and buy gold and uh, put it in a safe place or buy land. It doesn't have to be gold. I I recommend gold for investor portfolios. I mean, if you look, we're, we're we're in London. It's a booming part of town. Everywhere we go, there's business. Everyone is using 
pounds and then if you go to America you know it's it's you know maybe the economy's not doing as well as you would like but everyone is using dollars every second of every day the whole thing it, it's you know that you're talking about uh, I don't know the the, the, the cement at the heart of America or something like, you know, the blood of America is, is the US dollar or the American economy. You, I don't believe in fiat money, but it's not just suddenly going to lose its value. There's well, just too many people who believe in it. Well, it will. And it's just too normal. It's just normal part of our everyday life. Well, a couple of things. Number one, uh, yeah, there's a lot of spending and asset prices are going up. Stock markets are going up. You're absolutely right about that, Dominic. But most of it is fueled by debt. Uh, it's not fueled by growth. It's not fueled by work and savings. It's fueled by debt. Uh, the best description I've ever heard of a financial panic, uh, you can get as technical and uh, you know expansive as you want, but the best description is uh, a panic is when everybody wants their money back. People think they have money, but they don't know what money is. People look at stock markets and say, well, I've got money in the stock market. No, you don't. You have stocks. Uh, these are digital assets. By the way, leaving aside the normal risks of any financial market, we have new risks, and this is what I talk about in my, in my book, The New Case for Gold, of a cyber financial warfare. Mm. Vladimir Putin has a 6,000-member cyber brigade. Yeah, I found that very scary. Right, they can shut down exchanges. So I run into billionaires, and they're happy to tell you that they have uh, stocks and bonds and so forth. And I say, well, and, and they're rich. And I say, well, no, you don't. You have electrons. Uh, they can be wiped out. They can disappear. You'll have nothing overnight. Uh, the only way to preserve wealth, is at least have part of your portfolio, again, gold, silver, fine art, land, these are things that cannot be hacked, they cannot be erased, etc. Um, and uh, uh, quite apart from malicious acts of uh, cyber financial warfare, you can the power grid can go down, uh, stock exchanges can be closed. And this is what will happen in a panic. The next panic, uh, they're not going to uh, try to print their way out of it, they're going to lock down the system. ATMs will be programmed. How do you know that, though? Because uh, the plans are already underway. Again, everything I talk about, Dominic, first of all, has happened before or has happened elsewhere. Um, but if you actually read the uh, technical papers from G20 summits, the IMF is the central bank of the world um, because it meets the definitions of a bank. They have assets. They have liabilities. They print money. Uh, they have a board of governors, uh, an executive committee. But today, the IMF is really the outsourced uh, secretariat and uh, enforcement arm, if you will, of the G20, which is a kind of board of directors of the global financial system. Uh, and the G20 meets uh, once a year at the leaders' level, uh, uh, President Obama or, or Prime Minister Cameron or Chancellor Merkel and President Xi of China and others. But they also meet periodically at the central banker level, at the um, uh, working committee level. And they issue papers, they have working groups, and I've read many of them, and uh, they are accessible, they're publicly available, and they explain uh, the rules of bail-ins. Bail-ins are, uh, well, you, you know, your depositor at an insolvent bank, well, sorry, you can't have your money back. Your deposit will be converted into equity, we'll send you a share. You're now an owner of a bank. Um, bondholders have been wiped out, depositors have been converted to equity, old equity has been wiped out. Uh, we saw it happen in Cyprus, we saw it happen in Greece. Um, We've seen it happen in the United States. In 1933, President Roosevelt, on his first day in office, issued an executive order, closed every bank in America. Can you imagine the president today closing every bank in America? No, I can't. Well, I can, because it's happened before, and it will be a matter of necessity when there's a run on the bank. So what you'll find, you'll go to sell your stocks, and the exchange will be closed. You'll go to get your bank deposit out, and you'll find you've been converted to equity. Yeah, but then it'll open up again next week. So you go a couple of days. Uh, well, see, that's what they'll say. Now, remember President Nixon, August 15, 1971. Uh, go back and you can easily find it on YouTube. Go back and listen to what President Nixon actually said when he took the U.S. off gold. 
He said, I am temporarily suspending the conversion of dollars into gold. He used the word temporary. It was 46 years ago, and uh, it's yeah. still in place. So it's always a temporary measure when they announce it, but uh, uh, it may be temporary in the sense that they need a timeout to restore confidence in the system. By the way, it begs the question whether the way they restore confidence... Uh, zero is interest rates and quantitative easing were both supposed to be temporary. Correct, and now we're into negative interest rates, and... Uh, no end to quantitative easing, and at least in Europe and Japan, we may come back to it in the United States. But uh, we may find something else waiting for us, which is gold. Uh, there's not a central banker in the world that wants a gold standard. You can be certain of that. But they may have to go to gold, not because they want to, but because they have to. Because when confidence is lost, uh, would you have any more confidence in the IMF's fiat money than you did in the U.S. fiat money or the Bank of England fiat money? Well, if the government told me it was money and everyone was using it, then yes. Well, that's a two-part sentence, Dominic. The government will tell you it's money, but perhaps everyone's not using it. Perhaps they've, they're running down to Sharps Pixley and buying gold, or they're, uh, they've already, if they're more fortunate, they've already got their gold. That, that's another point that I make. Uh, for those waiting for the panic, they say, look, Jim, I, I hear what you're saying. I've read your book. Uh, you make a good uh, case. Uh, as soon as this panic starts, I'm going to run down and get gold. I say, no, you're not, because you're not going to be able to find it. It won't be available. Uh, the time to get gold is now, when it is fortunately still available. How much of your portfolio have you got in gold? Uh, my portfolio is uh, closer to 20%, but I don't advise that to clients. I reckon that's a personal preference if you want to do it. Uh, Actually, breakfast with a, a, a billionaire today who has fifty percent in gold. So, uh, but I, but I recommend ten percent. Ten percent is enough. Put it this way: um, if you have ten percent of your investable assets in gold, and I am very wrong, you will not be hurt. But if I'm right, that will go up uh, five, six, perhaps ten times, and that will preserve your wealth when the rest of your portfolio is burning down. So, put ten percent uh, of your money in gold and hope it doesn't go up. Uh, well, that's right. It's like buying life insurance and hope you don't die. So you talk about a, f a price of $10,000 for gold. Gold is currently trading at, I don't know, $12.50 an ounce, $1,250 an ounce, something like that. Um, so effectively you're saying it's going to go up 10, 10 times. From yeah, eight, eight, eight to all, at least that, perhaps higher, but I'm comfortable saying, uh, let's say 10 times, that's, that's a rough estimate, sure. When those kind of numbers get bandied about, obviously everyone's going to be, get very excited and go, I've got to buy gold because it's, I'm going to make 10 times my money and I'm going to be rich. But the dollars, if, if gold goes to $10,000, then a dollar's not going to be worth much. Well, that's right. Um, first of all, when I uh, forecast $10,000 gold, and I can, I'm happy to explain the basis for that, people don't say, uh, oh, gee, I better buy gold because I'm going to be rich. What they say is, um, you're crazy. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of used to that. If you have a kind word to say for gold, get, you, get ready to be uh, disparaged or marginalized, uh, as I said, I'm used to that a long time ago. But let me explain the basis for that because it's not a large number I picked out of a hat. It's not, not a number I put forward to get headlines, I could care less. Um, it's actually the implied non-deflationary price of gold. Let me explain what I mean by that. One of the greatest monetary blunders of all time, certainly of the 20th century, in 1925, uh, the UK went back to gold after having uh, effectively walked away from it uh, in World War I. Uh, the, the UK, uh, look, wars are existential crises. Governments do what they have to do to get through them. And the UK engaged in enormous money printing t uh, to fight World War I. And no one faults them for that. As they say, uh, you, you have to win the war. But then in the post-war period, they were looking for a way to get back to gold. Winston Churchill actually was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. Um, and the question was, okay, we're going back to gold, but at what price? What is the sterling price of gold? 
Churchill felt sort of honor-bound and duty-bound to go back at the pre-World War I price, which was uh, uh, four and three-quarters pounds uh, uh, per ounce of gold. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, who was an advisor at the time, said, no, that's a blunder. He said, you've doubled the money supply. If you're going to go back to gold, you need to double the sterling price of gold. They didn't want to admit that they'd done that, though. Correct. And, but, but the alternative is to cut the money supply in half. You can either double the price of gold or cut the money supply in half. But if you're going to have a new parity at the old price, you've got to equilibrate the money supply. Keynes said, look, just admit what you've done, double the price of gold, and get on with it. Uh, Churchill uh, instead went back at the old price. The UK cut the money supply, put the UK in a depression and deflation four years ahead of the rest of the world. The UK was in serious uh, depression uh, before the stock market crash in 1929. So the, the lesson is a simple one. You can have a gold standard, but you, you must avoid a deflationary price. And that actually goes to another criticism of gold, which one hears often, which is, well, uh, we cannot have a gold standard because there's not enough gold in the world to support world trade and commerce and finance and the available money supply. Well, that's nonsense. There's always enough gold. There's exactly as much gold as there is. It's not a question of quantity. It's a question of price. At $1,250, $1,250 an ounce with the existing gold supply, that would be extremely deflationary. That would repeat the blunder of 1925. But at $10,000 an ounce, then you could comfortably support the existing money supplies. So that, that figure is a simple calculation. It's nothing more. We know, we know what the money supplies are of Europe, uh, China, Japan, uh, the UK, the United States. That, that information is readily available. We know how much physical gold those countries have. So you simply divide the um, gold by the amount of money and you come up and you have to make some assumptions. You have to say, well, okay, um, what's my definition of money? Is it M0, M1, M2? These are all different definitions and uh, different amounts of money. And then make another assumption. How much backing do I think I need? Is it 10%, 20%? The Austrians would say it must be 100%. I've, I've chosen 40%. So admittedly, those are policy decisions. But using a global M1 with 40% backing, that number today is $10,000 now. So it's not a made-up number. That is the implied non-deflationary price. Um, if uh, you want to use global M2 with 100% backing, which I don't think is necessary, but that number would be uh, closer to fifty thousand dollars an ounce. So again, these are uh, these are the this this is the price of gold you would have to have to be on a gold standard. Now it doesn't mean that we must have a gold standard, but in a financial collapse, which I can foresee for the reasons we've explained, where one goes to gold uh, as a way of restoring confidence, which is the key to any monetary system, this is the price gold would have to be to avoid a depression. For any statisticians listening, I think there is three quarters of an ounce of gold for every person on the planet, and world gold supply grows at the same rate as the world population, um, which makes it, if you're into natural law, it makes it nature's money of choice. I would like you to define, Jim, what a collapse is. A collapse, uh, first of all, when I talk about that, I point out the international monetary system has collapsed three times in the past 100 years. This is not a once-in-a-thousand-year event. Uh, 1914, 1939, and 1971 all represent collapses of the international sure. monetary system. Okay. What happens? To when, tell me those years again, sure. 1914? 1914, 1939, and 1971. 
What it means, Dominic, is a loss of confidence in the existing monetary arrangement, what the elites call the rules of the game. The rules of the game break down. Okay, when how did it, it collapse in 19, 1914, UK, Germany, and France all took their countries off the gold standard? Belgium, uh, Italy, all the, all the uh, belligerent nations suspended redemptions into gold sure. in various ways, right? But that, I mean, that didn't, people could still carry on using pounds and, and, and francs and marks and so on in the way that they did previously. Well, except you had hyperinflation in uh, 1919, and then you had, followed by a, a short depression and hyperdeflation immediately thereafter. Uh, well, that, you only had hyperinflation in Germany. Um, no, there was hyperinflation in the United States as well in, in 1919 which was very quickly followed by deflation and depression in 1920. You had extreme monetary swings in the, uh, after... But, but, I mean, it didn't collapse. Well, it, it, it did collapse. It's, well, see, I should define... It's not the end of the world. We don't all live in caves. We don't eat canned goods. What it means is that the major financial powers get together around the table and they rewrite what they call the rules of the game. This happened okay. in Genoa, Italy in 1922 at Bretton Woods in 1944, at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. in 1971, with some follow-on efforts at the Plaza Accord in 1985 and the Louvre Accord in 1987. So it's not the end of the world. Uh, it's the, the rules not been written, rewritten since the 80s, then? No. Uh, what's happened since the 80s is that we've been on a de facto dollar standard. So we, sure. abandoned, we abandoned the gold standard in, 19, in stages between 1971 and 1973. Uh, from 73 to 1980 was a horrific period. The U.S. had three recessions in eight years. The price of gold went up uh, over uh, 25 times from $35 an ounce to $800 an ounce. In that, for 1970, yeah, but that is a slightly illusory trajectory because it was coming off a, an extraordinarily low base. It was coming off the $35 from the Depression. Okay. And that 850 price was one day. And that was a spike during the Afghan war with all the um, with the Iranian hostage crisis. It was the day after the hostage crisis. Okay, so well, so the average daily price in January 1980 was $600 an ounce. So you're right, 800 was a super spike. But let's just take $600 an okay. ounce. It's still 20 times or 2,000%. But let's take another uh, time series. 1977 to 1981, five-year period, cumulative inflation in the United States was over 50%, 5 meaning the value of your dollar was cut in half in five years. If you were an annuitant, a retiree, a saver, uh, you had insurance, you had any fixed payment at all, you lost half your wealth. Now, is it the end of the world? Well, for people, you know, I got a call recently from an 85-year-old woman who lived in Florida. Uh, she said, I have $100,000 in the bank. Uh, I used to make about, you know, say 2% interest, 2.5% interest. That was uh, two, $2,500 a year, let's say. Uh, today, uh, with zero interest rate policy, I make zero. She said, that lost 2500 paid for my medicines. What should I do? Uh, now, Ben Bernanke has an answer for her. It's like, woman, you're a fool to have your money in the bank. You should invest in stocks. That's why they took interest rates to zero, to have what they call the portfolio channel effect, mm -hmm. to drive savers out of the banks, into the stock market, inflate asset values, and create what's called the wealth effect. If my portfolio goes up, I might feel more prosperous and spend more money. This would increase aggregate demand. It's all nonsense. Uh, there is no wealth effect, not measurable. In fact, some evidence points in the opposite direction. Same thing with negative interest rates. The point is, this woman... It's also it, evil? Uh, well, yes, it's a form of theft, uh, but... Uh, this woman, this 85-year-old woman with, with $100,000 to her name, she has no business in the stock market. You could lose 30% of your wealth in a matter of days or weeks, and that's happened. And, and Dominic, I say these things and people roll their eyes and go, oh, that would never happen. Look, August 19, 1987, the U.S. stock market fell 22% in a single day. By today's measures, that would be... Yeah, but it rebounded. 
it would it rebounded. Uh, but if you needed your money that day, or if you needed to, uh, uh, you know, write a tuition check for your children, or uh, pay for your your mom's uh, health care, or uh, yeah, it rebounded if, sure. you, if you had the benefit of time. But sure. if you need the money that day, and of course, you know, um, people assume a complete rationality. I'm so smart that I know exactly when to buy the bottom, exactly when to sell the top. That's nonsense. That's not how people actually act in the real world. What they do in situations like that, they sell at the worst possible time. The point, I'm not saying don't invest in stocks. I'm saying that an 85-year-old woman with $100,000 to her yeah, name so not cannot get a place for savings. Exactly. But that was the view of the Federal Reserve is that you should put your money in stocks. That has actually worked in the sense that we do have asset bubbles. You talked earlier, you know, your, your measure of prosperity, Dominic, was here in London and prices are going up. I look around, I see asset bubbles. I see people who will never see their money again once prices go down. Uh, so... Uh, whether it's property or you know apartments or stocks, uh, uh, etc., all this is built on uh, on uh, central bank credit, central bank uh, balance sheet expansion, debt leverage, uh, and it can all go away in a heartbeat, as it has many times in the past. Uh, new build property in London is toast. You've got my agreement on that one, <laughs> but for all sorts of other reasons, on top of the ones you described, I buy your idea that some kind of arrangement to the monetary system is going to have to take place, some, some kind of reset. But I don't buy collapse. I don't buy this word collapse. Well, I think it gets banded about too much. And, you know, collapse, it, it does point to guns and tins and, and all the rest of it. Well, not in my view. Uh, it, maybe it does for some, uh, but I'm very careful when I use the word. I mean mm. a collapse of confidence. Let's just take uh, 1977. The United States Treasury issued U.S. Treasury bonds denominated in Swiss francs. There was so these were the famous Carter bonds. There was so little confidence in the dollar. The world didn't want dollars, at least at a price the Treasury. That was seventy-seven. Nineteen seventy-seven. The United States issued U.S. Treasury notes denominated in Swiss francs. There was a loss of confidence. That's what I mean by collapse. A collapse of confidence. Not the end of the world. Not eating uh, goods out of uh, tins and caves. But um, but a need, a necessity to reorganize the system and rewrite what are called the rules of the game. By the way, the rules of the game is a phrase that's over 100 years old. It's shorthand among international monetary elites for, think of it in, in modern parlance as the operating system of the international financial system. Um, so what I do in my books, what I did in, in my second book, The Death of Money, and also part of the reason I wrote my new book, The New Case for Gold, is to say, okay, you can see the collapse coming based on the dynamic systems analysis I described. You can see it will be worse than the last time because the system is larger, therefore the class will be exponentially larger, and central banks are at the, uh, at the outer limit of, uh, of being able to maintain confidence, not the legal limit on printing money, but the, the ability to print money and maintain confidence. Uh, the collapse will be a loss of confidence. And so what will the new system look like? Yeah. When people sit around the table, now China will have a seat, the UK will have no seat because they have no gold. Um, but Europe will have a seat, the US, Canada yeah, will have We've got very nice accents, and that, that, well, that'll get us a long way. I'm a major Anglophile. I love being in London. It's, it's always a pleasure, and I love the, uh, the, the British people. But uh, the fact is you have no gold or no, no significant amount of gold. So you, you'll be, you know, you've seen tables where there's six or seven seats at the table, and then chairs along the wall. The UK will have a seat in one of the chairs along the wall, beside Canada and Australia and other countries that uh, don't have enough gold. But the people at the table will be... Uh, Germany, on France, Italy, um, uh, the United States, Russia, because uh, Russia has now surpassed the United States on a gold-to-GDP ratio. That's the metric mm -hmm. I use. Uh, and, of course, uh, I don't know if I mentioned China, but, of course, China is 
working hard to get a very good seat. Think of it, uh, Dominic, as a poker game. You sit down at a poker game, you want a large stack of chips, and uh, gold will be your chips. The Bank of England is very interested in Bitcoin, and they, I think they're aware of the problems of our debt-based money system, the fact that 97% of money is created by private banks when they make loans. And I think if they took it really seriously, they'd start looking at how they measure inflation. But anyway, let's leave that aside for the moment. I know they're looking at some kind of blockchain-based cash system going forward to replace our debt-based system. Why can that not work? Why does gold have to be involved? Well, ask yourself why they're doing it. Uh, I'm not saying gold has to be involved. I'm saying that um, it, it may be involved, and if it is, then the price will be the ones I mentioned. But come back to your, your specific point. If you're going to slaughter pigs, you don't chase them around the field. You herd them into pens uh, adjacent to the slaughterhouse. So what's happening with savers? They're being herded into digital pens, and the slaughterhouses are named J.P. Morgan, Citibank, uh, RBS, uh, Barclays, and, uh, and and a few other names, Wells Fargo. So uh, we're being told, uh, you know, we, we can't have cash. Uh, leave aside the fact that it's paper fiat money. We can't even have it in physical form. Uh, you know, if you people in the United States think they can get cash, so try going to a bank and drawing out five thousand dollars. Sure, I know, but criminal. that's not that's not that's all to do with control and and trying to make sure that they get their taxes and, and clamping down on claps at tax evasion. Well, also negative interest rates. So the the uh, one of the hottest selling items in Japan right now are home safes. Uh, and, the, and the Bank of Japan has actually stepped up the printing of 10,000 yen notes, approximately $100. And what people are doing, they're buying home safes, they're stacking up 10,000 yen notes and gold and putting it aside and avoiding negative interest rates. And, you know, uh, big brains like uh, Larry Summers, Ken Rogoff at Harvard, um, and voices in the, uh, uh, in the UK have come out uh, against large denomination notes. They say it facilitates terrorism and tax evasion. And, uh, um, well, it does. Well, well, it does, but that's not the reason that why they're suddenly opposing it. They're opposing it because they want to go to negative interest rates. They want to steal your money. And they want there's to there's another reason. People expense. are more likely to spend uh, digital money than they are cash. People well, are more prudent with their cash. Well, uh, yes, and the digital money they're spending is often debt. So uh, they're... they're uh, uh, look, this is an effort to get the lending and spending machine geared up again to create the inflation we talked about at the start of the interview, and it's not working. Uh, yeah. Negative interest rates are good examples. What's the I buy that. Yeah. I don't buy that they're lining them up to slaughter them, though. Um, well, uh, we see negative rates in most... Uh, I think the majority of the developed economy sovereign debt is now has a negative rate to maturity. Not the U.S. yet, but uh, certainly um, uh, Europe, uh, Japan, and... Uh, uh, are, and Japan is the second largest bond market in the world. Europe, mm -hmm. in total, your denominated debt is larger than the treasury market. That for a single country, the U.S. is still the number yeah. one, but Europe as a whole uh, is comparable, and Japan is is right there. Um, and so, uh, so they have negative interest rates. So they, uh, uh, you know how they work, and uh, you, uh, this is co a, a kind of confiscation of your money. But the theory of it is. Uh, well, if you're going to take my money away, I might as well go spend it, you know, and try to get uh, aggregate demand uh, mm -hmm. increasing and try to get the velocity of money up, et cetera. But it's having the opposite effect. People say, look, if you're going to take my money away, I have to save more uh, to meet my retirement goals or my children's education or my parents' health care, as the case may be. And furthermore, um, as far as spending is concerned, what kind of message is the central bank sending when they have negative interest rates? They're saying they fear deflation. Well, if you fear deflation... I might just defer my purchases if I think the price is going to get lower. So governments are trying to encourage uh, spending 
and increased demand, and what they're actually getting is savings and deferred uh, spending, which is the opposite of what they want. Typical central bank policy where the eggheads, you know, the big brains come up with a theoretical policy, which is completely contrary to human nature and behavior. Let me tell you my 100-year cycle in money mm-hmm. thing that I've noticed, see if you like it. Um, and bear in mind, cycles are, I regard as completely arbitrary. You can look back at history and find some cycle and then declare that there's a cycle. But nevertheless, in the early 16th century, we saw people, we saw running cash notes, people starting to use paper instead of gold and silver. In the early 17th century, 1714, I think it was, maybe 1716, we got the first great recoinage in the UK. 1816, after the Napoleonic Wars, we got the second great recoinage in the UK. 1914, uh, UK abandons the gold standard along with Germany and France and everyone else involved in that war. And then here we are 100 years later, 2014, invention of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I agree, there is some new evolution in money coming. But why should, why does it, why gold? And bear in, look at me, Jim, I've yep. got half an ounce of gold around right. my neck. It's very impressive. Okay. It's, it's a nice, uh, nice It's piece. two, two um, gold sovereigns melt, melted down. Right. Um, and a and, and little fact for you is listening, a gold sovereign uh, is, is the old pound coin. Mm-hmm. It now takes 250 gold sovereigns to buy one of those pound coins. Right, right. Uh, sorry, 250 pounds to buy one of those pound coins. Right. But, but why does, I mean... Isn't gold irrelevant now? It's just a nice thing we wear. Uh, Why well, does gold have to play a role in money? Okay, so if it's so irrelevant, Dominic, if it's so marginalized and so out of favor, why does the United States have 8,000 tons? Why Tradition, the, as Ben Bernanke said. Well, that's propaganda, as I say. Uh, I've spoken to Ben Bernanke about this. Look, um, uh, the U.S. has 8,000 tons. The European Central Bank, all the members combined in the Eurozone, have 10,000 tons. Mm-hmm. China has about 4,000 tons, that's an estimate. They're trying hard to get to 8,000 tons. Russia has acquired 1,000 tons in the past six years. Uh, The IMF holds on to 3,000 tons. So it's the money of last resort. I will buy that. Well, uh, maybe first resort. I call it, uh, you know, we we mentioned earlier there's uh, different measures of money, M2, M1, M0. I call gold M sub-zero. It's the real base of the money supply. But central banks don't want to talk about it. If you were in the business... Of uh, printing central Is it that bank. they don't want to talk about it, or they just don't think that's the case? They don't want to talk about it because they don't want to pay any attention. They don't want you to pay any attention to it. They they, they watch it very closely. Uh, you know, sometimes I get into debates and people say, "Well, who controls the U.S. gold? Is it the Fed or the Treasury?" And I say, "It's the United States Army. Uh, our gold is on two army bases: uh, Fort Knox and West Point, uh, which are both controlled by the Army. Uh, People's Liberation Army controls the Chinese gold supply." Uh, your gold here is in the, in the Bank of England. I'm sure it's well guarded. But the point is, um, all of these, uh, uh, it, you know, I point out in my book in Chapter 1 of the New Case for Gold that the, the United States is out of the game as far as selling gold is concerned. And I explain why, because mm-hmm. of the linkage between um, how, the, how the U.S. Treasury got the gold in the first place. They confiscated it from the Federal Reserve. But the Federal Reserve, our central bank, is privately owned. Uh, our Treasury is a government agency, of course. And under the U.S. Constitution, uh, government cannot seize property from the private sector without just compensation. The compensation that the Fed was given for the, uh, for the Treasury taking their gold was a gold certificate. Uh, it's carried on the Fed balance sheet at a historic cost of about $42 per ounce. It's a fairly unimpressive line item. It's publicly available. You can look at the balance sheet. Uh, but I actually did the, the math uh, and took the uh, book value divided by 42 
took the resulting number of ounces, converted to tons, and lo and behold, it came up with 8,000 tons, which is exactly how much, approximately how much the Treasury has. Um, so it's very clear that the Treasury cannot go below 8,000 tons because they need that much gold to at least morally back up the gold certificate on the mm -hmm. balance sheet of the Fed, which means the U.S. can't sell anymore. So, what do, so when did we hit that level? Because I always were, uh, wondered why the U.S. stopped selling gold, because we, we dumped, uh, in 1950, the United States had 20,000 tons of gold. In 1970, we had about 9,000 tons of gold. Uh, even after going off the gold standard, we dumped another 1,000 tons of gold in the late 1970s. Finally, by about 1980, we got to 8,000 tons. Why did the Treasury stop selling gold? Why not sell another 1,000 and another 1,000? We had the gold. Well, the answer is because that links to the gold certificate on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. So the U.S. is out of the game. So what did we do? We got the UK to sell their gold. We got the Swiss to sell their gold. The IMF sold 400 tons in 2010. We're getting everyone else to sell their gold. Why don't we sell ours? And now the central banks have stopped selling gold completely since 2010. Central banks have been net buyers. We mentioned mm -hmm. the two biggest buyers, China. That's partly because they felt like fools because uh, the gold price kept on going up. And well, that's a good lesson, isn't it? And so the point being, uh, Dominic, central banks today are net buyers. Uh, the two biggest net buyers are Russia and China. Um, are they fools or do they see something most people... Well, China's got such a small allocation to gold uh, in relation to the size of its economy, it's got to rebalance. Well... Is it like, is it like one, one and a half percent of its foreign exchange well, holdings are in gold? Is you're, that right? you're mixing uh, two metrics. One, uh, some people look at gold as a percentage of total reserves, mm -hmm. and that's the metric you're referring to. In the case of China, it's about one and a half percent. You're exactly right. By the way, do you know uh, what percentage of U.S. reserves are in gold? Seventy-five, is Correct. it? Correct. Yeah. Think about that. You know, the U.S. is disparaging gold. Bernanke's coin. But it doesn't need foreign exchange, though, because it's got the dollar. Well, well, that's right uh, for now. But uh, in fact, we have seventy uh, over seventy percent of our reserves in gold. But to me, the more relevant metric is the gold to GDP ratio, because GDP is the size of your economy. It's the gross value of all the goods and services in your economy. If gold is the, the true money, as I see it and as I describe it, the M sub-zero, as I call it, uh, then how much money do you have to support your economy? Um, and if you do that ratio, what you find is that uh, the U.S. is about 1.7%. Um, uh, China is uh, somewhat less than that. The U.K. is kind of hard to find under a microscope. The gold champion is Europe, where that ratio is closer to 4%. And Russia is about 2.7%. As Russia has recently passed, uh, I did this math in my last book, The Death of Money. I updated it for my new book, The New Case for Gold. But of course, the numbers have changed because the amount of gold in the U.S. has not gone up, but the amount of paper money has. So, of course, the ratio changes. So the U.S. has dropped a little further back in the race. We're, under, we're now under 2%, but Russia is over, uh, is actually closer to 3%. Uh, China still has some ways to go, but they're still acquiring gold. Uh, so they're probably out to acquire 8,000 tons and match the U.S. As, right, match the United States. So um, again, my question is: Are all these countries fools, or do they see something most of us don't? On that note, I think we'll end the interview, Jim. It's been a fantastic interview. Thank you very much. I want you to give your book a nice, big, juicy plug. Thank you, Dominic. It's called The New Case for Gold, with emphasis on the word new. There are new 21st century reasons to have gold in your portfolio beyond those uh, reasons that you know very well. And uh, very appreciative of uh, folks in, interested in the book, available on Amazon and all leading bookstores. And uh, if we want to find more about you, Jim, do you have a website? Uh, I do. It's the uh, James Rickards Project, all one word, Rickards, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S. So go to jamesrickardsproject.com. 
Uh, I'm also very active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at James G. Rickards. I put out a steady stream of comment on the international monetary system. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 